Good morning. My name is Matt Morton. For those I haven't met, I'm the teaching pastor over at our Creekside campus. This week and next week, Brian and Blake and I are rotating throughout the campuses. So this morning you got me. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes as we continue that series this morning. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. Our subject this morning is the subject of pleasure. And we're going to look at Solomon's experiment with pleasure and then a little bit about how that applies to us as those who want to know God and follow God. So let me just issue a quick word before we dive in. The discussion this morning is going to deal with some mature issues like sexuality and substance abuse and those types of things. It will not be graphic, but if you have children particularly under the age of 11 or 12, just use your discretion as to whether they are prepared to hear this type of discussion. Again, I'm not going to be graphic, uh, but it will be mature. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we think about the subject of pleasure, and as I was preparing for this sermon over the last couple of weeks, one of the things I thought about is how you and I tend to react to pleasure in relatively predictable pathways. When we encounter something that we like, whether it is a particular food or sex or beauty in the world around us, we react in relatively predictable ways. And as I thought about it, I thought there's really five stages of pleasure. And I thought I'd illustrate those for us as we dive into Ecclesiastes 2 this morning. I'm going to illustrate them by using some photos from my daughter Abigail's second birthday party. This is uh, from a few years ago. Uh, Here we go, the five stages of pleasure. The first one is this, anticipation. All right, you see something that you like, a cake, whatever it may be, and you're excited about it. Uh, Your mind begins to respond, uh, your body begins to respond, and you say, I want that. Is it going to be as good as I think it's going to be? Second stage is preparation. You have now moved beyond simply anticipating the pleasure to making plans. Uh, So she's reaching for the fork. She's about to dive into this pleasure. So you've gone from just looking at something to saying, how can I engage in this pleasurable activity. Uh, The next stage won't surprise you, and that is participation. Uh, With a little trepidation here, you see it in her eyes. She takes that first bite. Will it be as good in my mouth as it looked on the plate? You take that first bite, and that leads to the next stage, which is dissipation or immoderation. Uh, She has abandoned the fork and is now simply using her fingers. As quickly as she can shove this food into her face, she's going to shove it in. And within a matter of seconds, that cake is gone, right? That's immoderation. We dive in headfirst and say, I want to experience this pleasure to its fullest. And then the next and final stage, which almost always follows, is what we might call desolation. The plate is empty. The fingers are dirty, my face is dirty, I have nothing left except perhaps the anticipation of the next cake, the next buzz, the next pleasurable experience. Uh, If it's an illicit pleasure, perhaps the stage that follows is guilt or shame. 
Right, and as we look at those five stages of pleasure, I share that not just for a laugh, but also to illustrate the way that we respond when in the world we encounter pleasure. What's interesting is God has designed you and me to respond to pleasure. Pleasure is something God made. Our minds and our bodies are made to chase after certain good gifts that God has put in the world. Whether it is food, whether it is sex, whether it is surrounding ourselves with things that are aesthetically pleasing, like beautiful items in our home, or music, or entertainment even. Our bodies and our minds are are wired to respond to pleasure. And as Christians, we're going to see, we are not ascetics. We do not believe pleasure in and of itself is an evil thing because pleasure is something God created. The challenge that we are going to face and what we'll see that Solomon faced is when we take pleasure, a good thing God has made, and we turn it into a God. Because pleasure was never designed to bear the weight of all of our hopes and dreams. It was never designed to bear the weight of our need for a life of lasting significance. It just wasn't made for that. It's a good gift God has made. But when we turn it into a deity, it will inevitably disappoint. We live in a world and particularly in a culture that deifies happiness and pleasure. It is probably a fundamental underlying philosophy of our culture that whatever you must do to make yourself happy is worth doing. That the highest end of our lives is to chase happiness. And in a culture that does not worship God first and foremost, one of the primary ways people seek happiness is through pleasure. It's interesting, when I was uh, leading the college ministry at Grace, I would rarely get more pushback from a sermon as when I gave a sermon and said that the highest goal of our lives is not to chase happiness, but instead to chase our meaning, significance, and joy in God. Because undermining our culture's value that we're supposed to chase pleasure and happiness first and foremost is offensive to many in our world. And yet, as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, what we're going to see is that Solomon found that chasing after pleasure as a deity and as the highest end in his life caused happiness to hover just outside of his reach. He'll call it a striving after the wind. It's vanity. As we've, as we've walked through Ecclesiastes, uh, you might frame the overarching concept of Ecclesiastes like this. Nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. Nothing on earth can satisfy our need for lasting significance. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about knowledge and wisdom, and Blake gave a great sermon on the idea that knowledge and wisdom, when it becomes a God, will never satisfy our need for lasting significance. I know last week he talked about money. Similarly, if we turn money into a deity, it will never satisfy our need for lasting significance. This week we're talking about pleasure. 
And what we're going to see is this, that pleasure is a good gift, but it's a disappointing deity. It's a good gift, but a deeply disappointing deity. And Solomon found that out firsthand. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness and of pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem." Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun." What was Solomon's conclusion at the end? All of it was vanity. All of it was striving after the wind because he said, I'm going to take something that is good that God has made and I'm going to chase after it. I'm going to dive in head first and see if I can find meaning in pleasure. And so every pleasure you can imagine, Solomon took his resources, all of his wealth, and he bought it. And at the end, he said, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, as we walk into the topic of pleasure this morning, I want to make a point that may not occur to you as we read through the passage, and that is this. In our world today, every single one of us can repeat the experiment of Solomon. We live in a world in which if you want, like Solomon, to find illicit sex, you can find it in spades, even if just on the internet. If you want to find every substance imaginable for your body, you can find it. If you want to fill your home with beautiful things in spades, you can do it even on a modest salary. If you want to numb your nights and days with entertainment, you can do it. If you want to gorge yourself on all the sweet foods you can find, you can do it. We have at our fingertips as much opportunity for pleasure as Solomon ever had and more than he could imagine. And every day, men and women in our world and in this room are repeating Solomon's experiment and finding the same thing that he found. That when we chase pleasure as an end in itself, to provide us with happiness and significance and joy and meaning. It is a striving after the wind. Consider your life for a moment. Is there a pleasure, overt or subtle, that has become for you a God 
that began as something enjoyable and has turned into something that controls you. It may be food, it may be sexuality, it may be alcohol, it may be a substance, it may be spending money, it may be entertainment. And as you search your heart, you say, I know that this pleasure has a control on my heart and it's become a deity that I worship and serve. As we walk through Ecclesiastes 2, again, we'll see pleasure is a great gift of God, but a deeply disappointing and destructive deity. I want to start with the positive because I know you're feeling a little bummed right now, right? Pleasure is a good gift. Right? Pleasure is a good gift. As you look even through the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will affirm multiple times the value of pleasure. It's something that God has made. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 2. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? Now granted, Solomon is a bit cynical throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. But even in the midst of his cynicism, he says, look, uh, food and drink and good things. God made those things. Those are things that God gave because God is a God of kindness and of love who loves to give good things. And at its best, what pleasure does is it reminds us of the character of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, he will talk about intimacy between husband and wife. And he'll say this, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. The 20th century poet Langston Hughes said this, folks, I'm telling you, birthing is hard and dying is mean, so get yourself a little loving in between, all right? From an Ecclesiastes perspective, that's not bad advice, right? Solomon says, look, life is short. Life is hard. We daily face the reality of our own impending death. And so God, in some sense, has given us pleasure to minimize the pain of life on this earth and to remind us that he is a good father. He is not the God of the frowny face. He is a God who is open-handed and generous. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. If there is something you enjoy, God made it. God gave pleasure to our lives. Now, the danger is when pleasure exceeds its proper boundaries, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But as Christians, we are not ascetics. In the early years of the Christian church, in the early centuries of Christianity, very quickly there developed a philosophy of asceticism among certain pockets of Christianity. And the mindset was that I can be closer to God if I pull away from all of the pleasures of the world, if I refrain from drinking or eating anything good, if I refrain from sexuality and pursue a lifestyle of celibacy, if I refrain from enjoyable conversations even with other people in the world. So I will pull away from the world. And so men and women said the best way to know God is to enter a monastery 
monastery or a convent and get away from the world. The ascetic movement probably reached its peak around the 4th or 5th century with men like Simeon Stylites. Uh, Simeon Stylites was a Syrian monk who moved out into the desert to be a hermit because he believed that talking to other people uh, polluted him from knowing God. Uh, The problem was that people followed him out into the desert to try to be with him and glean from his wisdom. So Simeon Stylites then moved back into the city of Aleppo in Syria, and here's what he did. He found a pillar that was old, and he climbed to the top of the pillar. It was one square meter, and there he lived for the next four decades of his life. Boys from the village brought him food and carried his waste products down, and he lived there until he died. Because he had a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of God and his world. He believed that sin springs from the body rather than from our corrupted and sinful and broken hearts. So Paul said in Colossians 2, writing hundreds of years before Simeon Stylites, that all of the regulations we put in place for our lives. Do not taste, do not handle, do not touch. They have the appearance of godliness, but they're really of no value in restraining fleshly indulgences. And the reason is because at a, at a heart level, the problem is we don't worship and trust God. And so external asceticism will never solve the problem of pleasure that gets out of boundaries. Because pleasure is a good gift. Chocolate is not evil. Pleasure is a good gift. Uh, when we think about the kingdom of God that's going to re- come when Jesus returns, we actually often think about it in purely spiritual terms. Maybe we'll be sitting on clouds, we will be playing terrible music on harps, whatever it may be. Uh, We will be separated from anything that's really fun. And yet, as you look at the biblical descriptions of the kingdom of God, you see things like this in Isaiah chapter 25. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. It's interesting, Isaiah mentions the wine twice in the same sentence, all right? And he, he talks about how God is going to bring this rich banquet. As you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you see Jesus inviting his people to a wedding feast, and he says, come and enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. Think about the last wedding feast you went to, and all of the good food and drink that was spread throughout that banquet. That's the type of God that we have that says, come and eat. Think about Adam and Eve when God placed them in the Garden of Eden, and he said, from any tree in the garden, you may what? Eat, eat. There's just one that you're supposed to stay away from because pleasure is a good gift of God. And for some in this room, perhaps because of sin in your past, perhaps because of teaching you've experienced that has said the primary way to know God is through uh, restricting what you do with your body. You, you struggle and pleasure controls you, but not by means of overindulgence. Instead, it controls you by means of rules you have set in place that have then made that pleasure an object of worship in a backwards way in your life. Whether it is sex in your marriage, whether it is that you never find yourself able to enjoy any good food or drink without guilt and shame. And you have created a barrier against pleasure 
in your life. And yet, biblically, pleasure is something, when it's used appropriately, that causes us to turn to God himself and worship God for his goodness. Pleasure is a good gift. And Solomon affirms that. But Solomon is also going to tell us that when we place too much weight on it for lasting significance, although it's a good gift, pleasure is a deeply disappointing deity. When I turn something God has made for my good into something I worship, it will disappoint me and it might even destroy me. And often we see men and women destroyed by their pleasures because they're unwilling to turn to God. Pleasure is a good gift, but a disappointing deity. Solomon tried everything. As you walk through Ecclesiastes 2, you see he tried what we might call entertainment. He says, laughter. I tried laughter, and you know what I found? It was madness. He says, I turned to surrounding myself with aesthetically beautiful things, music, and gardens, and parks, and pools. And you know what I found? They were vanity. I turned to sex, and I found that it was vanity. He says, I turned to alcohol. And he says, I tried to uh, allow my mind to be influenced by wine while letting my mind guide me wisely with wisdom. Uh, One pastor said he got drunk and took notes to see the impact of wine on his body and his mind and say, can this provide me with meaning and lasting significance. And he found that it was a deeply disappointing deity because the more he chased after happiness through pleasure, the more happiness was right outside his grasp. And he said, it's like chasing after the wind. I just keep reaching forward to find happiness and joy and meaning, and it's just outside my grasp. I can't get a hold on. Why is pleasure a disappointing deity? Let me offer a few reasons this morning. First of all, because it is short-lived. It's short-lived. Even the greatest pleasures in your life don't last long. Uh, We saw that in those pictures at the beginning of this talk. That cake probably lasted about 20 seconds on my daughter's plate. Whether it is food, whether it is sex, whether it is something you buy, it doesn't last long. It's short-lived. I was thinking how last summer... My family and I, we had the opportunity to go to Disney World, which they say is the happiest place on earth, right? And toward the end of our trip, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who was 11, said, I want to go ride the rock and roller coaster. It's supposed to be one of the faster roller coasters there, and it was going to be her first real roller coaster, and uh, Shannon did not want to go on it at all, so I volunteered to go with Elizabeth. We were out of fast passes, and so uh, we just had to stand in the normal line and wait our turn. Right when we got in the line, somebody came over the loudspeaker and said, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to experience longer than normal wait times today because of a group in the fast pass line. And we looked up and there were about 200 high school kids that showed up right then in front of us in the fast line that we had to wait for. So it was about 150 degrees in Florida (laughs) in July and we're standing in this line and I looked at my daughter and I said, are you sure we want to do this? And she goes, I do. I want to do it. So we stood in that line for two hours and waited for the rock and roller coaster and we made it. And do you know how long that roller coaster is? <laughs> I looked it up. 82 seconds. All right. 
82 seconds of fun for two hours in the line. From an economic perspective, that is a disastrous investment, right? It's terrible. Now, it was worth it to me because I was with my daughter and we had a great memory. But really, just from a strict efficiency perspective, it's an awful use of your time. And I thought about that and I thought, that's the way pleasure always is, isn't it? If we put too much weight on it. We anticipate it, we think about it, we plan for it, we arrange our lives around it, and then it comes and it goes so fast. And we go, oh, that was it. I guess I better start planning and anticipating and waiting for the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And it never satisfies because it's short-lived. In contrast, God's love lasts forever. A relationship with God through his son never dies, never goes away, and lasts forever. God is eternal. The pleasures of this world are fleeting and temporal. And that's why Solomon will say it's vanity and striving after the wind. It just doesn't last. And yet we often place all of our hopes for significance and meaning and joy in the pleasures of this world. Think about everything that you've ever bought that you thought was going to be the best thing you've ever had and how short-lived it was. Every moment of pleasure in our lives will eventually fade away. God's love will last forever. Pleasure is short-lived. Pleasure can destroy us. We all know that on some level. I think all of us sitting in this room would say, I know that there are some pleasures that can destroy us. Uh, We've seen people destroyed through drug addictions or alcohol addictions or things that we may say, this will kill you quickly. There are other pleasures that kill you just more slowly. So we're not always as aware of them. Uh, About a week and a half ago, Burger King announced a brand new burger. This is called something like the extra long garlicky buttery burger. That's the real name of it. I'm not making that up. It's not even the highest calorie item on their menu, by the way. This only has about 700 plus calories. Okay, the highest calorie item is is like a triple whopper with 1,200 calories. Now you look at that and you know if you eat that every day, it will kill you, right? You know that. It's going to clog your arteries. It's going to give you a heart attack if you eat that all the time. And so some of you are looking at it and you go, that is disgusting. Others of you are looking at it and you're nudging your spouse right now. And you're saying, we're going there after church, right? (laughs) You know it's going to kill you, but you still want it so badly, right? Because it kills you pretty slowly. But pleasure outside of its proper boundaries will destroy us. And yet we chase after it because at some deep level, we believe that it can be a worthy God. I will never forget when I was a college student, I was in a Bible study with a group of young men, other college students. And one day, uh, one of the young men in our study came in and he confessed a sexual transgression that he had gone to an illicit place and engaged in inappropriate sexual behavior with another individual. And he, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I, it, was, it was a few moments of pleasure 
followed by several hours sitting at the lake thinking, should I just walk in over my head and end it all? Because his heart and his spirit were steadily being chipped away by a pleasure that he had turned into a god. I read a study in preparation for this sermon from 2014 about the effects of pornography on one's brain. And what they found is this, like any pleasure, sex, food, whatever, uh, when a person sees something pleasurable, their brain releases a chemical called dopamine. You might think of dopamine as sort of a reward chemical. It's something in your mind that says, I want that. I need to chase after that. And we're wired that way, right? Because uh, sex and food and these types of things, they help keep us alive, but they also ensure the continuation of the human race. And so God wired us to find pleasure in these things. The challenge with illicit pleasures like pornography is it provides a very quick, very high-level hit of dopamine in your brain that tricks you into thinking this is better than being with a spouse or a real person. And so you get this high-energy, quick hit. And guess what? The next time you look at the same image or type of image, it's not quite as much. So you need a little more and a little more and a little more. And what they found is that much like a drug or alcohol addiction, it is destroying the ability of men and women to actually relate with real people, especially in a marital context. And the same is true, by the way, of food and drink. I ran into another article that said overeating functions much like a hard drug addiction. It releases these quick bursts of dopamine that convince you I have to keep going and get more and more, and more. And pleasure, when it becomes an idol, can destroy us. Paul Brand, in his excellent book, The Gift of Pain, says this, scientists have identified a pleasure center in the brain, which can be stimulated directly. Researchers have implanted electrodes in the hypothalamuses of rats, who are then placed in a cage in front of three levers. Pressing the first releases a piece of food, the second lever yields a drink, and the third activates electrodes that give the rats an immediate but transient feeling of pleasure. In these experiments, the rats choose to press only the pleasure lever day after day until they starve to death. Why respond to hunger and thirst when they can experience the pleasures associated with eating and drinking in a more convenient way? That's an illustration of when pleasure becomes a God. We'll go to any lengths to chase the next pleasure, even at the expense of our health, of our relationships, of our walk with God, and maybe even at the expense of the thing we thought we were chasing in the first place, our own happiness. So Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, all a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. Chasing pleasure has the effect that the more you chase it, the less satisfied you are. Because we are meant to know God first and foremost and find happiness as a byproduct of knowing Him and worshiping Him for the things He has made so that no pleasure becomes an idol in our lives. So pleasure is short-lived It can destroy us, and it can blind us. It can blind us 
to the eternal realities of our lives. It can blind us to the fact that all around us day after day, men and women are dying without the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It can blind us to who God is and what he wants from us because all we care about is that pleasure. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, Solomon says, For a man will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Right? In a good sense, as we mentioned earlier, pleasure can minimize the pain of a hard life on earth. But if we're not careful and it gets out of bounds, we can simply forget everything that matters. When I was preparing for this sermon, I'll confess this was a hard sermon to prepare for in a number of respects because I had to research and read about things that I just as soon would not want to know. And it was, it was difficult, and yet there is a pleasure in giving a good sermon and walking away and saying, I had the privilege of presenting the Word of God, and I think I did it well. There's a pleasure in that. But you know what? It's a long-term pleasure. It's a pleasure that comes after a great deal of work and discipline and effort. And so the temptation for me was to find something pleasurable that would happen quicker. And for me, as I was preparing this, that was Facebook. Because I can go on there and I can get likes real quick. And there's this tiny little rush of fun that comes when you see that little red like, right? What does it say? Or an email that goes, boom, and you go, I'm doing something, right? I'm productive. When in reality, I'm called to a long-term task that's difficult, but results in a longer-lasting and deeper happiness and pleasure than anything short-lived. Real relationships in marriage take work. To know and love a spouse for a lifetime is difficult. If you find it easy, don't tell the rest of us, right? (laughs) Being in shape is difficult. It takes work and discipline, and yet there is a long-term pleasure in knowing that your body is healthy, Knowing God is at times difficult to pursue the word of God, to worship him alone, to set aside the pleasures of this life at times. Not because God wants us to be ascetic, but because he first and foremost wants us to know him. And there is a pleasure infinitely greater in knowing the God who made us. And so the only solution to turning pleasure into Our God, the only solution is to know God and to follow God and to make Him the source of our worship, to make Him the source of everything good in our lives and acknowledge that on a daily basis. So, pleasure is a good gift, but a very disappointing deity. Here's the question Have you and I turned to some pleasure? in our lives, into a God. Be honest. In your mind and heart right now, is there some pleasure that you say, I know that if I didn't have this, I would be unhappy. If I didn't have this, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the meaning or significance of my life would be. 
Is there some pleasure that you say, you know what, I have to acknowledge that it now controls me. I serve this pleasure instead of it being a tool to draw me to God. Have you turned pleasure into a God and placed so much weight on it that it's become your idol? Well, what do we do? Because the reality is for all of us in this room, that is going to be the case to differing degrees at different moments in our lives. So what do we do? Three closing thoughts. First of all, seek pleasure in God first. In John 15, 9 to 11, Jesus encouraged his disciples to abide in his love. And you abide in his love by obeying his commands. And he says, I'm telling you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You see what Jesus is saying? That true joy, true pleasure comes from connecting ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. And so we seek pleasure first and foremost in knowing God. If you're here this morning and you don't yet have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you may be chasing meaning through any variety of things in your life, through any number of pleasures. And what the scripture would say to you is that life really begins at the moment that you recognize Jesus died and rose again, first of all, to forgive you of all of your sin, all of those areas in which we have turned anything but him into a God in which we've chased sinful pleasure, no matter what you've done, there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when we recognize that and believe that, the Spirit of God enters our hearts and allows us to know him and pursue him and find the pleasure that comes from God alone. If you know Jesus Christ, do you day in and day out submit your mind and your body and your search for pleasure to him? To pursue the long-term pleasure of trusting God rather than the short-term pleasures that often destroy us. Seek pleasure in God first. Enjoy earthly pleasures, but within their proper boundaries. As we said before, Food and drink and sex and beauty and all of these things that God has made, they are not evil. But we are called to keep them within their proper boundaries so they don't become our God. And then thirdly, seek help when you need it. Notice I say when, not if. Because again, I think virtually every person in this room will hit a place in life where you say there's something that has a hold on my heart and I need help. You can come and talk with me or one of the other pastors here at Grace. We have counselors we can recommend. We have a Celebrate Recovery program that you can find information about on the website. We have multiple avenues for you to seek help from the body of Christ through the power of God's Spirit in order to say, you know, I don't want pleasure to be my God. I want God to be my God and my pleasure so that we then are able to pursue all that God has for us when it comes to knowing him and shining the light of his goodness and his grace and his glory to a world that needs to hear the message that meaning and significance and joy are found in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for this time and for your word. 
I pray that we would not feel the need to repeat the disastrous experiment of Solomon, but that we would believe your words. Because we recognize there are times where experience is not actually the best teacher, but your word is. I pray for all of us in here this morning who struggle to submit the pleasures of our lives to you, that you would give us strength through your Spirit, remind us of the forgiveness and the power offered through your Son, Jesus. It is in his name we pray, through your Spirit's power, in submission to you, Father. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.